0: All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck, buddies? What the fuck, Nicks? What's happening? I'm Mark Marin. This is my podcast. WTF has been since the beginning, since 2009. Established 2009 WTF with Mark Marin. So this is exciting. Today, you know, these things happen. I don't know they're going to happen, but they happened, you know, out of nowhere. And this happened pretty quick. So I get a call or I get a text, I get an email, I get a dispatch. From a uh, producer, Brendan McDonald, who got a dispatch from uh, Central Talent Booking. And all of a sudden, it's like, you want to do Smokey Robinson next week or in a couple of days or tomorrow? I can't remember how quick it happened, but it happened pretty quick. And I'm like, Smokey Robinson? Of course I want to talk to Smokey Robinson. Smokey Robinson of the miracles? Of Smokey Robinson and the miracles? Smokey Robinson, the former vice president of Motown Records. Smokey Robinson, one of the greatest songwriters of all time who wrote one of my favorite all-time songs ever, if not my favorite song. That Smokey Robinson, the Smokey Robinson that just released his 26th studio album called Gasms. All right, you can't always win with the titles. You know, you make choices. But it's called Gasms, Solid Smokey Music. I'll tell you that right now. This guy's still fucking 100% got it. He wrote Tears of a Clown, Tracks of My Tears. Those two right there. The English beat version of Tears of a Clown is one of my all-time favorite songs. I listen to it a lot. I love it. I love the sax on it. I love the pace of it. I love the way that guy sings it. I just love the English beats version of Tears of a Clown. Anyway, there's something about that song. Obviously, I don't want it to be too obvious. You know, I'm a fucking comedian. Um, But I don't know. It's just the beauty of that song. The beauty of Tracks of My Tears. It's a pretty long list. Of amazing Smokey Robinson songs. But I would say that Tears of a Clown is almost genetically part of me at this point. But, I, you know, I never know what to expect from these cats. He's in his 80s. And, I, and I'll and i tell you, man, he showed up looking spiffy, looking fucking sharp. And, and he just was so quick and ready to talk and, you know, charming. It's fucking Smokey Robinson. I talked to Smokey Robinson on the show. It's crazy, man. Uh, in other news, the my black eye and the hole in my face and the scraps uh, scratches on my nose are coming along. They're healing okay. It's coming along all right. So listen, I um, had a pretty intense few days, man. So I get an offer to uh, be in a movie. It's a movie about The Order, which was a white supremacist group that... Um, was one of the early ones. It was, it's not like historical, like the KKK, but it was really one of the early kind of um, domestic terrorist organizations. Uh, it started up in Washington um, in the early eighties eighty eighty 84. It was a combination of different types of militia guys, but you know this was real. You know domestic terrorism, Nazi shit. They were driven uh, wi- by anti Semitic literature. And, uh, well, anyway, I'm not going to give you the whole history of The Order, but Jude Law's company is doing a, a movie called The Order. And I read the script and, you know, he's playing the investigator who eventually broke the case and they, they, the, the leader of The Order was killed in a shootout. But what some of you may know The Order for or know what they did, one of the crimes that they did was that they assassinated a talk radio show personality named Alan Berg uh, in 1984. This was like really before talk radio was a big thing, and he was sort of a, a lefty talk radio guy, just a provocateur, really. Eric Boghossian sort of found the seeds of talk radio, the play that he wrote uh, in the Allen Berg murder. I don't believe he's playing Alan Berg per se. Alan Berg has a very specific type of style. There's not a lot of him out there recorded um, but I had known the story and, and I remember reading about it at some point in time, but not really knowing the full scope of it. So I was offered the role of Alan Berg and it's really only a few scenes. Uh, it's, it's him on the mic. There's, uh, some of his rants being played in the cars of some of these Nazis. Some of the guys that killed him. Uh, there's, uh, some footage of him. Yeah. In the studio, as I said, and him at a diner, then him. Uh, driving home, and then him being assassinated in his driveway with uh, a, a machine gun. But I was offered this role, and I didn't see how anybody else could play the role. I thought that I it was destiny that I have to play this role, even if it's a small part. It's a pivotal part. This was the you know the major crime that this group of people was you know indicted for, and uh, and also to be honest with you. Having done Lefty Talk Radio and having been a comic who talks about things the way I talk about them, the threat or the fear of the threat of me being, you know, the victim of violence because of, you know, what I say and how I say it has always sort of been in my mind. Then again, you know, look, I'm a paranoid person. But when I was on the the radio, it was always sort of hanging there, given the nature of our country and, and I'm being a public person. And... I remember having the guy from some website at the time because it wasn't as, nothing was as fluid in terms of social media back then in 2004 or whatever. But we had the the guy who created the like a Jew Watch website that was a list of all the Jews in show business. So my angle was, let's get him on. He was a Nazi. My angle was, let's get him on and try to talk him into how amazing the list is, and, and that it shows that Jews are pretty amazing. And that, like, I think he's framing it wrong. It backfired, you know, they're creepy. It's all creepy. But nonetheless, my point is there was always a fear in my mind of being the victim of violence for being a public-facing Jew with with lefty sort of political uh, and progressive ideas and 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 also having a big mouth. It was. All, I always felt afraid in some ways and still do to a degree. So when the offer came to play Allen Berg and specifically Allen Berg being slaughtered in his driveway, I, I had to do it. I didn't see any way not to do it. It, it felt like, well, this is, I, I wouldn't say it's it's some sort of ser, serendipitous or you know, I, why wouldn't I be the guy to play that? But also it's a way for me to embody and live out my probably my biggest fear or certainly in the top three and also to get into the mindset of what that might have been like, what that might have felt like, what, you know, the the sort of weird, quiet event of being killed by a gunman at night in your driveway out of nowhere. There's no war. There's no fight. There's no, Expecting it, but just this very strangely horrific, intimate act of getting out of your car and being shot for what you believe in your driveway by anti-government terrorist organization who identify as Nazis and you're a Jew in America. So I was up in Calgary over the weekend for a few days. And we, pri- we primarily just shot, we just did the scene where Berg is assassinated for his beliefs as a media personality in America in 1984. Imagine, you know, this is this, the kernel of it. And now it's, you know, it, it, is, it has momentum in our culture as a, as a legitimized point of view within the Republican Party, the people that killed this guy in his driveway. Some of the same people. Many of the groups that were affiliated with the order still function today. Aryan Nations, Ku Klux Klan, National Alliance. So it was important to do. It might be an important movie. I don't know. When I got there to Calgary, they, you know, I had to, it's weird because I I grew out my beard, I grew out my hair, and I I was able to sort of do most of his look because he's a fairly hairy guy uh, without doing much, you know, cutting some bangs, combing my hair differently, taking my glasses off. And we did still shots for, it would have been press shot of him for the bulletin board of The Order in their bunker or in their clubhouse. And when I got there, they were doing some sort of rally. So they had a a couple of hundred of extras, uh, all different varieties of white supremacists and Nazis kind of hanging around. And that realization that this is fictional, but this is real. This is down the street shit now. This is out in public shit now. And they killed a guy because he was a Jew and pushed back in his driveway in 1984 in Denver, Colorado. They drove down there and, you know, cut him in half with bullets. And back then it was like, holy shit, that's fucking crazy. But if, shit, if this shit were to happen tomorrow, and it does happen, but not to media personalities, just to people sitting in houses of worship, slaughtered by organized white supremacists, domestic terrorists, killing Jews because they're Jews. It's happened a few times in the last few years. And it's still kind of like doesn't quite register for some reason that this is an organized front. So all that, I'm just saying that, you know, I had to get into this guy's world. I had to drive this little VW Beetle. I had to walk out of a radio station. And then I had to pull up to a house and get rigged with squibs which I'd never done before as an actor. And, uh, you know, do that thing. And it was an interesting shot, the shot of me being shot, having those blood packs blow up, out my back, shot in the front, blown out the back. Did it in a couple takes, dropped into a puddle of blood, was shot in a puddle of blood, sticky blood, laying there, cigarette dangling out of my hand, in the puddle of blood. Eyes open. I got a still of me laying in a puddle of blood as Allenberg. And I go back in a few weeks to do the talking, to do some of the uh, the on-the-mic work that he did. And I think they're going to thread some of that through the movie. But I had to do it. I had to do it. I didn't see how anyone else could do it or should do it. And to step into that, event and to realize that that event does can and will and does happen again and again there was just less momentum behind it then but now there's a lot of organized momentum it's very scary it's an important movie i don't know if it'll resonate in the way that it resonated with me or or i don't know if it'll stand up to what's happening in the world today but to play a guy an American guy who spoke his mind on a radio program in Denver, not even a national radio program and was mowed down in his driveway by Nazis, by domestic terrorists, by white supremacists in America in 1984. But it's important to know that it's bigger. It's more organized And it's more supported now than it was in 1984. That now you have this sympathetic, leaning, gutted political party celebrating people who massacre people in the street for reasons they think are appropriate, who kill people on subways for reasons they think are appropriate, who legitimize guns of all kinds in the hands of almost anybody. I don't know, man, not great, but it was an honor to play this guy. And I'm, I got to go back up in a few weeks and finish that. So to change gears, um, I enjoyed being in Calgary for a couple of days. I hadn't been there in a long time. I went there years ago to do stand-up, I think at a place called the Blackfoot Inn. And like, I didn't have a lot of time and I, and I watched a few movies yeah, I'd, I'd, I always get a little anxious when I'm waiting to be in a film. And, um, you know, I had a lot of time in the room and I had a, I found some vegan restaurants. I go to supermarkets and I really had to think about what do I do when I go to other places? I wander around, I go food shopping and I look for things to eat. That's about it. And I watched uh, I watched I watched once upon a time in, in Hollywood again for the fourth time. Still amazing. Keeps giving. I watched Heat again. Beautiful. And uh, and I, I did a little reading, but also like it's weird. You go to some places and, and sadly there are fire. There's a lot of forest fires going on, I guess, in Alberta. And the it, the wind is blowing it into Calgary. And so, like, I got up there and I was like, oh, I know what this is. It was like L.A. a couple of years ago and just over and over again down here in California. Just that. Orange smoke hanging in the air. It's just apocalyptic vibe. But the day we shot uh, was clear, and that and, and the weather was pretty good. And there's magpies everywhere. I was able to identify a magpie, a bird. I don't know how, but I knew it was a magpie. There's magpies and rabbits everywhere. They're like pigeons and rats in other cities, so it's prettier, you know? There's just rabbits jumping around downtown Calgary, and there's magpies everywhere, and they're a pretty stunning bird. So that was the upside uh, of going up there and... And and playing, uh, Alan Berg and being slaughtered. It was the magpies and the rabbits and the, the pretty g- the very good, uh, um, Vietnamese vegan food I had and Korean vegan food. All right. So look, Smokey Robinson. When you really sit down and look at the catalog of Smokey Robinson as a songwriter and a performer, it's kind of mind blowing. It's a mind blowing life, and he was fully. Engaged and fully entertaining, and just a a pleasure to talk to. Uh, You can get his new record, Gasms, wherever you get your music. And this is a conversation I had with uh, Smokey Robinson. Do you have a residency in Vegas? Yeah. Oh yeah? Just it's been going on for what years?
1: No, 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 no. no? I just started uh last year.
0: Yeah. yeah. At which hotel we're at?
1: At the Venetian. And how's that? Wonderful. It's the most beautiful room in Las Vegas, man. I played them all. Yeah. It's the it's like Carnegie Hall in Las Vegas.
0: And what's it what what's the work schedule when you do that?
1: I play uh Friday and Saturday.
0: Yeah, two shows, yeah. one show, one yeah, show each one night. One show a night, yeah. It must be great,
1: it is great, man. I love it because you know, like I said, I live there, too, so it's yeah. great,
0: and you gotta who do the musicians where do they come from? Where do you, do you bring in? To do? I have
1: my own band man i have I have eighteen people who travel with me all the time all the time. that's amazing, yeah, sound lighting, yeah, band and singers,
0: and on this record on gazms because i was I couldn't find uh, personnel listing, you know, but everybody sounds so good. I've talked to uh I've talked to Thundercat and I've talked to uh Anderson Pack, and there just seems to be this uh there's very deep respect uh, for you, but primarily for that sound from the 70s that you kind of invented. I know you were on Anderson's record, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. In fact, I'm going to do a charity thing with him tomorrow evening Yeah. Uh, before I leave town. Yeah. My main uh, arranger and, and and production person that I yeah. work with here in L.A. is a guy named uh, David Garfield, who is okay. a jazz musician himself. yeah. yeah. He makes records himself. Yeah. Know? So he hires the musicians basically that we work with, but we have guys that we, you know, like Paul Jackson Jr. And yeah, Freddie Washington. Yeah, and, yeah. You know, and um, sounds great. We, yeah, yeah, yeah. We we have the guys that we work with. Yeah. You know, for all years. The time. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean, the, the record sounds great. The the title is a little, uh, you know, I when I saw the title, I was like, oh, that's bold, and uh, <laughs> what does it mean? Where is he, he going with this? And I thought when I listened to the new record. It seems like there's a little bit of your whole life on there in terms of sound.
1: Well, yeah. You know what? That's what I went for. Yeah. I went for, you know, uh, some some uh, retro sound. Right. But uh, with, with just like a little modern twist on it.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, well, I mean some of it, though, like, "Beside you. Mm-hmm. I mean, you could have recorded that in 1960.
1: Yeah. I wish I had. <laughs> I, I do, man. Yeah? "Beside You is a song that I've always loved. I, I, uh, a young lady... Uh, I had relatives in Chicago yeah. when I was growing up in Detroit, and uh, one year this 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 lady who lived two doors down the street from me, her niece came to Detroit. Yeah, and she was around our same age, and uh, she was from Chicago. Yeah, and the Flamingos were from Chicago, from the singing group Flamingos, yeah. and they had a new record out called "Beside You," and we were in the confectionery down on the corner from my house, and a bunch of us were in there. And she played it, and I loved it from that moment on and My only regret is the fact that I wanted Aretha to hear my version before she died, but I didn't get a chance to play it for her because I had recorded it, but I hadn't completed the vocal uh-huh. before she died, but she was in the store that day, you know we grew yeah, up together, yeah. so uh. So and and that was one of our favorite songs.
0: So that so, so this is the, so you finally made it on the record. Absolutely. That's a long time coming.
1: Yeah, long time coming. <laughs> it's,
0: you know, I learned about you and Aretha because uh, did you see the movie Respect? Yes, I'm in it.
1: Oh, okay. I'm Wexler.
0: <laughs> oh, all right, man. Very good. Very good. Yeah. I played Jerry Wexler. And, uh, I was
1: almost in it.
0: Yeah, What, what they, did they want you to play? What they no, no, you no, 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 yeah, not my yeah. character. Oh, you yeah. Know, I you, thought know, you, la- you had a moment. There was a moment where you, were, you come uh, in. Just a moment, too. Yeah.
1: In the last conversation that I had with Aretha Man, ironically, yeah, we were talking, and she called me, and she said, Baby, she said, Who do you want to play you in my movie? <laughs> I said I don't care, babe. I mean that's up to yeah. you. Whoever yeah. you choose. I mean that's up to you. You uh-huh. know. And then that was the last conversation we had. We talked about that, you know. About that and movie. then in the movie, I had about that much time. My character had about that much yeah. time in the movie. And um, I, I just I, I was kind of you know with my relationship with Aretha, how it was all of our lives. I mean I've known her since I was eight years old. You know, yeah. and we grew up together and all that. I thought it was kind of slight.
0: Well, yeah, I, I don't know the the decisions that were made on that, uh, you know, in terms of that script and that movie. How did you feel? Like, because, I mean, it sounds like everybody was sort of around the corner back then.
1: Well, pretty much so, man. You know, uh, I, I, you know, I've, I've known Jennifer Hudson for, since she was on American Idol, really. Sure. And uh, I thought she did a great job.
0: But it seems like, you know, in that neighborhood you guys grew up in, that, you know, there was a lot of people around that went on to, to do amazing work.
1: Oh yeah, man, a whole lot of people, man. I grew up four doors down the street, street from Diana Ross. Oh, how and,
0: old? Like for how? How old are you?
1: Uh, I have known Diana. She was probably when they moved into the neighborhood. She was probably about eight years old.
0: Oh my God! You know, and, yeah. uh
1: that's and crazy. So I've known her since then, and uh, and
0: Aretha, how far away was that house? Aretha,
1: I've known Aretha since I was eight years old. Yeah, her, her house was right around the corner. Yeah, so you know, Diana was four doors down the street. Uh, Aretha was right around the corner. Just by coincidence? And, uh, I guess it must have yeah. been uh, happenstance. Yeah, you know, uh, because uh, Aretha and and her family moved in uh, just before Diana and, and her family moved yeah. in. you know. Yeah. But Aretha, in, in I grew up in the hood, man. I grew up in the ghetto, and right in the middle of the ghetto, yeah. man, there were these two blocks. Yeah. Now I lived on a street called Belmont, and. The next street adjacent to Belmont was a street called Boston Boulevard, and the street adjacent to that was a street called Arden Park, and Boston Boulevard and Arden Park were right in the center of the hood, man, but they had, like, these little brick archway things leading into the block, they had grass. They had little islands in between the, yeah. the two sides of the street. yeah, there were where the affluent people lived yeah. right in the So Aretha lived there. right She lived on Boston Boulevard the next block from over from me because her father had money. He was one of the biggest preachers in the country at yeah. the time,. You know? yeah. And so uh, they when they moved in, they moved uh, they moved uh, over on Boston Boulevard. And, we, you know, we'd go to their house. I know the first time I ever went there was when I met Aretha. And, uh, like I said, I was eight years old. And yeah. one, one, of, one of my friends, a guy named Richard, brought Cecil Franklin, who was uh, my lifelong friend after we met. Her brother? Uh, her brother. Yeah. Yeah, and, and we wanted to go see where they just moved into. Right. And we go around there, and they got all <laughs> these this plush stuff in the house. <laughs> and, everything. and I hear a voice, man. Uh, somebody's playing the piano. And I hear this little voice singing. Amazing Grace. Yeah. And I mean, singing. I don't mean just like a kid singing. I mean, somebody yeah. singing, you yeah, know, yeah. and playing. Yeah. And so I go and I look in this little room, man, where the piano is, and that's Aretha. She's six years old. She's sitting there playing the piano.
0: Yeah.
1: Damn near like she played it when she was grown, you know?
0: Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and
1: singing damn near like that. Yeah. Singing Amazing Grace. Wow. And so that, that's, that's when I first met her. But we were lifelong friends and, uh, and so it's sort of stunning. You know, and, and then uh, one of the guys in the in the group that I sang with the, yeah. in the Miracles, yeah. uh, Pete, uh, the four tops lived right down the street from him. <laughs> and then <laughs> yeah, yeah. right across the boulevard, the Temps lived right over there. You know. Wow. So it was yeah. It was it was kind of uh, cluttered with people who, who who were blessed enough to be successful in this business, man.
0: Well, I mean, it, it's also interesting. I mean, I imagine that. I mean, when did you start? Outside of the church or outside of hearing Aretha, I mean, when it, I always imagined that there was a lot of music going on. I oh, mean, yeah, there was all the, see,
1: there were 50 groups in our neighborhood. Right. And, yeah. And, and we used to sing wherever we thought there were some girls. Right. You know? Was it, would, yeah. would
0: they start with doo Oh, yeah. Um, was that oh, yeah. what it
1: was? Yeah. Street corner. Yeah. At the recreation center. Right. At school. Right. Or on the playground. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, in the school programs. Yeah. And, and, you know, like I said, at the house parties. Yeah. Wherever we could find some girls. That's what the guy <laughs> sang, man. Yeah. Yeah. The best group back in those days was the Four Tops. They were called the Four Ames. But if they were coming, the best you were going to get is second place. <laughs> you know it, yeah yeah yeah. Okay. so was it now cuz i have to
0: before before motown before you know uh, gordy started y- y- you know figuring out a way to do that how competitive was it i mean in terms of like just in the in the neighborhood around the singing
1: groups it was really competitive man yeah. and we just like i said we battled each other all the time
0: and would but it would be a thing like you, you uh, it
1: would be a thing yeah you know even if we just met on the street corner <laughs> You know, it would be a thing.
0: Yes, indeed. It and, would be. and you met the miracles. When, how old were you when you met those guys?
1: Well, uh, Ron and Pete. I met Ron first. I, yeah. I met Ron when I was about 10 years old. Ron yeah. was a, a paper boy on my street. Yeah. And he liked one of my nieces. My yeah. older sister raised me. Yeah. And because uh, my mom passed when I was 10.
0: Oh, that's young. And
1: my older sister come back in the house with her kids and she raised me. So. What about your old man? My, my dad was still alive yeah he, he lived upstairs yeah He had a what you call a two family flat uh-huh. that, you know but anyway um yeah so I was about 11 years old when I met Ron who was one of the guys because he had a paper on he liked like one of my nieces he started coming to the house <laughs>
2: yeah. and we
1: started talking about singing we were yeah. interested and then Pete Ron introduced me to Pete and so I met Pete when I was about 12 and uh, then uh, one of the guys in the group Bob, Bob and I were born on the exact same day in the exact same hospital in Detroit. <laughs> and then I met him when we were fourteen, he started singing with the group. Uh-huh. And uh, then Claudette's brother, Claudette, was the girl in the group originally, yeah. my yeah. my first wife. yeah, And uh, she was in the group. And she got in the group because her brother was singing with us throughout junior high and high school. And then when we graduated from high school, he went to the Army. So uh, she came in and stepped in because we had an audition. And to go to. Now
0: were you were you was it a uh, was it all vocal or did you have where everyone play something? No, no, like no, him? it was all vocal. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, wild. So, just do whopping, man. Yeah, that was it. <laughs> yeah. So, when did uh, when did you guys when did Marvin come in?
1: Marvin came in um like I said, I, I grew up with Diana. So, yeah. finally Diana moved away. Her family moved to a place called the Brewster Projects. And 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 after we started Motown, we had been going for probably about a year or so. Oh, okay. Yeah, and um we were going for about a year or so, and Dinah called me and said, Smoke, I got this group I'm singing with. We call it the Primets, and I want to come sing for you so you can sign us up on Motown. Okay. So I said, okay. So uh, they came and sang for me. However, Barry would not let me sign them until they graduated from high school because we already had Stevie. And when Stevie traveled, he had to have tutors and bloop-de-bloop bloop and all oh, that it stuff. Was, it was the law. You had yeah, to keep exactly. the kid in school. Exactly. So yeah. we had to wait until they graduated. But after they graduated, I took them over to Motown, you know. Oh, and, and Marvin. Uh, and Marvin, when they came to audition for me— right. When they came to audition for me, Marvin was with them. Okay. The Milkers and I were getting ready to go and do a few dates, and we didn't have a musician who traveled with us. Yeah. And in those days, man, you'd run into some bands who had no idea what your music was or your songs.
0: Oh, oh, right. You couldn't just trust a band you got on the road. No, no, no,
1: no, man. So I asked her if I could borrow Marvin to go out with us, and so she said, yeah. And uh, I wouldn't ask Marvin's mother because he was only seventeen at the time. Oh, that's crazy! And she started. He started traveling with us, and he never went back to them. And and, and from that point on, man, until Marvin passed away, when I saw Diana, whenever I was here, she would say, "Hey, Smoke, where's my guitar player, man?" <laughs> <laughs> every, every time. You know? That's but, great. Uh, so, but so when do you like? When do you
0: start? Because does does your songwriting start before Motown? I guess
1: obviously. You know what, man? I've been trying to write songs all my life. Yeah. And poetry. and Yeah. Stuff. Um, all your life. All my life since I was four and five years old. What's that? What yeah. is the
0: first song that you that you wrote that you know you knew was a, a song?
1: Uh, well, the first one that I wrote that I thought was a song, uh, I was six years old. Oh,
2: okay. <laughs> and, and,
1: uh, and my and my auditorium teacher, we, we did stuff in auditorium in, in, in elementary school, like have plays, and yeah. I was in a junior glee club, yeah. and all that stuff like that. So we did. A play about Uncle Remus. Do you know who Uncle Remus? Sure. Is? So we did a play about Uncle Remus, and yeah. Uncle Remus was an old black folklore guy yeah. who told the kids how the animals got to be like they are. Why, yeah. did, why the zebra had stripes, yeah. why the pig had a curly all that, you know. Yeah. So I'm playing Uncle Remus yeah. in this play. Right. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> yeah. So my teacher, she had written this little musical thing on the piano that she played at the beginning of the play and at the end of the play. Yeah. And while we were rehearsing one day, I went to her and I said, Mrs. Campbell, I said, can I write some words to the music you're playing? She said, okay, baby, go ahead. And so (laughs) I wrote them and she liked them. Uh So she let me sing it at the beginning of the play and at the end of the play. Man, my mom was in the audience. You would have thought that I was Cole Porter or George Gershwin or somebody like that, man. Yeah, My mom was, ooh, you know. But I've been trying to write songs all my life, man. And when I met Barry, I met him quite by accident. Um, I tell everybody it was a God day because it was a God day. Because the day—Jackie Wilson was my number one singing idol as a kid growing up. Jackie Wilson was from Detroit. And— I had all of Jackie Wilson's records. Yeah. Not only with Jackie Wilson's records, with records that even I, if I buy some music today, yeah. I want to know who wrote it. Sure. And I was always interested in that. Yeah. So I had all of Jackie's records, all the songs written by Barry Gordy. Barry Gordy, Barry Gordy. Yeah. So um, the day that we went to audition for Jackie Wilson's managers, they told us that we would never make it because there was a group of the Platters at that time. Yeah. And they had a girl. Uh, Zola Zola Taylor was in the group, and she sang with the group. And then Tony was a lead singer; he sang Hi, Yeah. And so that was the makeup of our group. You know? Yeah, yeah. So they said you never make it because we got the platters; we don't need another platter. So, <laughs> so I'm sorry you. you get... Yeah. Just so happens that rather than singing songs that were currently popular by other artists, we sang five songs that I'd written because we thought that if we did that, then they Stand would say out. these kids, yeah, these yeah. kids got their own material. We'll definitely sign them. Yeah. Nah, that didn't happen. (laughs) But like I said, it was a god day, man, because Barry Gordy was there that day. Yeah, just to turn in some new songs to Jackie Wilson, and I—he looked so young. I thought he was waiting to audition. Yeah. Okay. So uh, after the audition was over, and you know they rejected Barry, came out afterwards. And wanted to know where we got the songs from, because he liked two of my songs. We sang five songs. He liked two of them. You
0: mean, which one? Yeah. Do you remember?
1: Yeah, one of them uh, turned out to be the flip side of our very first recording, a song called My Mama Done Told Me. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, the other one was a song called I Cried, and it turned out to be the flip side of our second recording. But anyway, he liked those two songs, and um, so he came out, and he struck up a competition. He wanted to know if I had some more songs. I had a loose-leaf notebook of 100 songs in it, man. Really. And I must have sang 20 of them to Bury that day. And he never said, no, nah, I'm tired or I got to go or anything. He just listened. He critiqued all of them. He said, hey, man, he said you're a great rhymer. Yeah. But back in those days, babe, I would have four songs in one song because the first verse had nothing to do with the second verse, oh, yeah. even though it was all rhymed up. you know. Yeah, what yeah, sure. But he pointed out he started to mentor me on songwriting that day. And he told me, to listen to the radio, and he said a song's got to be a short book or a short movie or Something that has a beginning and a middle yeah. Yeah that, that tie it together. So, um but yeah, I've been trying to write all my life, man.
0: And that's what started that relationship. That's
1: what started that relationship. So
0: storytelling, that's it, huh? Because, like, I I think about it all the time because, like, you know, I'm I'm more of a melody guy. Mm -hmm. So, like, you know, it takes, I got to take another step, especially in newer music. I mean, your music and the older stuff, I mean, I hear you talking, I hear you singing, so Mm -hmm. I can hear the words. But a lot of times I get caught up on a riff, and I like the music, and I got to go back and listen to the words. Mm -hmm. So I've been thinking about songwriting a lot, but that really is the key to it. It's a story, huh?
1: Yeah, man. See, because uh, when I write, I want to write something that if I had written it 50 years before then, yeah, it would have meant something to people. Yeah. It's going to mean something currently. And 50 years from now, it's going to mean something when people hear it. Yeah. It's going, to be, it's going to tell a story that is relevant.
0: Well, I mean, you know, I, for, for me, I think you wrote like at least four of the greatest songs ever. I love you. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Tears of a Clown is, is by far uh, probably my favorite song.
1: Well, thank you so I mean, much, I mean, I listen
0: to your version, and I, I'm really, I like the English beat version, too. The well, ska version. Have you heard that one?
1: Uh, probably. Yeah. I've heard a lot of covers on that song. But uh,
0: it's, just, it's, it's more of a, uh, it's got a, a more, up, it's a different thing. But your version, it's just, I love the words of it. Now, you know, I'm a comedian, so, like, it, it speaks to me somehow.
1: Well, I have to thank Stevie Wonder <laughs> for that song. Man. You do? Oh, yeah. Yeah. One uh, year, we were having our Christmas party. We had them all the time, yeah. a- annually, at Motown. And all the artists came to the party. Yeah, Everybody yeah. was on the road at that time. Yeah. Stevie comes in. He's got this tape. He yeah. said, hey, man, I got a tape here of a track that I've cut. Yeah. But I can't think of a song, so listeners can come up with it. So I did. And the first thing I heard was, bum, 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 da uh-huh. which is Ringling Brothers, Yeah, and yeah. Bailey, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah. So I said, I'm going to write something about the circus on yeah, this track. Yeah. You know. Yeah. And when I was a kid, when I was in elementary school, one of my teachers, I, I don't even remember who, Told us the story of Pagliacci. And I to this moment, while I'm doing this interview, I have no idea if Pagliacci was real or just mythical. Yeah. But anyway, Pagliacci was this great Italian clown. Yeah. And people came to the circus to see him. He was the main focus That when they came. The animals and the type of <laughs> all those people were secondary. Yeah. Pagliacci. Yeah. And they cheered him and he loved him and so on and so forth. Yeah. And then he would go to his dressing room. And he would cry because he didn't have that kind of admiration from a woman. Uh, so he was very sad yeah. by himself. So Tears of a Clown is a personalized version of Pagliacci's
0: wow. life. That's where that came from. Mm-hmm. And 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 uh Stevie just
1: had the riff. He just had the track. He had yeah. already that track that's on the record is the one he gave me. Really? Yeah. So he, he had the whole song. He had the whole he had the whole track. Yeah.
0: And he's just he like, I don't know what to do with it.
1: No, yeah. He just didn't have a that's song. That's the way
0: his brain worked, huh? Yeah, he
1: just didn't have a song for it. So
0: was he, like, is that, was, did, is that the way Stevie thought most of the time? I mean, like, ha, I don't know how many of those early songs he wrote, but I think he wrote a lot of his own songs, right? Stevie or did Barry Wonder,
1: Stevie Wonder is one of the most prolific musical people to ever live. Yeah, sure. His music covers everything from gospel yeah. to blues to jazz yeah. to whatever, yeah. you know? He is so talented yeah. and so prolific. So yeah, so uh, he, he just
0: thinks in terms of music. Yeah, and but the other one, like uh, "Tracks of My Tears," is sort of another sad song from a similar disposition. From a
1: similar disposition. <laughs> yeah, "Tracks of My Tears." I think my my guitarist we talked about him earlier, Marv Tarplin. Yeah, because he came over the music for a whole lot of songs for me that became popular. Yeah, you know, he was my right hand writing partner. He was the greatest writing partner I've ever had. Yeah, so. uh Anyway, he'd give me the, that riff for. He put his guitar riffs on a tape and give them to me. Yeah. And he had given me that riff for "Tracks of My Tears," and um, I kept listening to it. Blah na 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 And so finally, I came up with uh, three words for the chorus. Yeah. Take a good look at my face. See him smile looks out of play. If you look closer, see the trace. I love that red rhyme scheme. This is the trace that you're gone, and I'm here crying. Yeah. No, you did. I went through twenty of those, man. Yeah. One morning, ironically enough. I'm looking in the mirror and I'm shaving, and the thought just came to me. Yeah. What if somebody had cried so much until their tears left tracks in their face? Yeah. That was it. So I was the able tracks to, of Yeah, so I was able to finish the song with that. Yes. You were shaving. Mm-hmm. So how does
0: it come together? How does like I can't even imagine the energy and excitement and just you know daily insanity of Motown at the beginning.
1: Well, you, evidently you can because you described it perfectly. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah, but yeah. I mean to be in that energy, you're all a bunch of kids. Absolutely, man. And like, how does that get started? How did uh, it got
1: started through Barry Gordy, man? Yeah. I tell people that all the time, yeah, because yeah. yeah. I'm a firm of belief, A firm believer that in every city, every town, every little country town, yeah. every, every little village, whatever it is, yeah. ratio wise, there's probably that same amount of talent that we had in Detroit, ratio wise. But the difference in Detroit was we had Barry Gordy. We had a guy with a high school education who was working on an assembly line at a car factory and boxing, and decided that he wanted to write music, and he wanted to make his music company like the assembly line at an auto plant. You come in, just raw talent. Like you said, the frame of those cars would come in, and by the time they got to the end of that line, They were a car. Yeah. He wanted to do that with talent. So that was his idea. That was his idea. Come in the front door, nobody knows you. Yeah. And you're raw. Yeah. Go out the back door, star. Huh. So that was what he wanted. So
0: And he had the assembly people. He had had the writers, the musicians. Well,
1: yeah, they gathered. When we started becoming, at first there was only five of us there, man. Who? Uh, There was five people there on the very first day of Motown. There was Barry, who was starting the company. Yeah. There was his then wife, a lady named Ray Noma. There was a lady named Janie Bradford, who was one of our mainstays. She's still alive Yeah. there at the company. It was Brian Holland of Holland Doja Holland Yeah. and me. Yeah. Yeah. So there were five people there. And he Barry said to us, he said, you guys, I borrowed $800 from my family to start my own record company. And we are not just going to make black music. We're going to make music for everybody. We're going to make music for the world. We're going to make music... We're always going to have some great beats and some great stories. And we're always going to quality control our music to make sure that we have those ingredients. And that's what we set out to do. And thank God we did it.
0: You did it. So at that time when he says we're not going to just make black music, what was the black music of the time that he was up against? Oh, black
1: music of the time was just, you know, played on the black stations. You had people, you know, they were playing... All, all the groups. Yeah. You know, like the Moon Glows and yeah. the Spaniels sure. and yeah. The Drifters and all those yeah. people, you know, they, they were all that and, and um, you know, they played people like uh D Clark and yeah. you know, Little Richard and so, Sure. So but that's Nomino, you know, Yeah, yeah. it just happened so Little Richard and Fast Domino did cross over eventually. But you know But there just, were a lot
0: of bands that didn't
1: Oh yeah, absolutely.
0: And and the and the trick was the the, the structure of the pop song.
1: The, the trick was to give them music, yeah, was to give them music that they could understand, they could relate to. You know, Uh Dr. Martin Luther King came to Motown eventually, and he yeah. came, and the day he came, he said, I want to record my I Have a Dream speech on Motown. We were very flattered. He was wow. Dr. Martin Luther King. He said, I want, to re- yeah. I want you guys to record me because you're doing with music what I'm trying to do politically. Yeah what i'm trying to have laws passed about he said you're doing it automatically with music you're bringing people together And people are love because we were. Yeah, we there were places in Detroit, man, when I grew up and when we started Motown. If you were black and you were in one of those areas, you better have something on you that says I work for Miss So and So, or I'm supposed to be in this area for some reason. If not, if the police caught you there, they were going to either whoop your ass, or arrest you, or harass you, or something for being in those areas. Okay. We started Motown. About a year later, we're getting re- letters, which would be that you couldn't even put a price on those letters nowadays if we had thought to keep them. But we're just young people. We're starting out. we're making music, we're doing what we love. So we get the letters, we read them, oh, this is great, and we put them on the sides, we don't even know what happened to them. you know. But anyway, we were getting letters from the white kids in those areas, okay? We got your music. But our parents don't know we have it. Because if they did, they might make us throw it away. But we love your music, okay? So we're getting those letters. A year or so after that, we're getting letters from the parents in those areas. Hey, we found out our kids were listening to your music, so we want to see why. So we heard it. We love your music. <laughs> yeah. Thank you for making music that our kids could listen to. Those letters would be invaluable, man. Yeah. But we were breaking down barriers. We go to the South. Black people on one side of the road, white people on the other side. Uh, or or, or or black people upstairs, white people downstairs, or vice versa. You this know? when you're doing shows. Yeah. Yeah. Never too intertwine. Never yeah. even looking at each other hardly, you know. We go back a year or so later. There's white boys with black girlfriends, yeah. and black boys with white girlfriends, yeah. and they're all dancing together, yeah. and they're all having a good time, because we gave them a common love. Yeah. We gave them that music that they commonly love. Temptation to go to Russia. We're having a Cold War with Russia. You know, we had to get all kind of stuff to go over there, but the people wanted to see them. So we let them go to Russia. They go to Russia, they come back to see smoke. The Iron Curtain is real, baby. So we felt it that, that way we went. but the people Love the music hey, yeah. and they knew it, yeah. And you know?
0: so, so, those early tours I mean, what were the first hits out of Motown?
1: The very first it was Please, Mr. Postman. Oh, uh, yeah,
0: was that Marvelettes? Marvelettes, yeah,
1: yeah, that, that started the ball rolling, yeah, you know. And then we signed a guy named Barrett Strong, and he had a hit, Money That's What I Want, the best thing in sure, life, yeah, yeah, he had a hit, I, I you know. It to the birds, and, mean, but yeah. the first million seller was yeah. Shop Around, yeah. and Shop Around was actually a song that I wrote. For Barrett, yeah, because he had this hit money. That's what I want. So
0: you guys were all so, working together, like let's oh, deliver oh, the oh, goods.
1: Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. That was um, the beauty of it. Yeah, the beauty of it was that we were in stiff competition with each other. Yes, but we also there helping each other. Yeah, that's the difference. critiquing each other yeah, so the music yeah. could be better. Yeah, whoever did it. Yeah, you know. So I wrote that song for Bar- for Barrett, and, and and I went and I sang it to Barry. I said, yeah, I got to smash it for Barrett. Shop Around took me thirty minutes to write, man. Just, yeah, it was one of those songs just flowed yeah, out. Yeah, though. yeah, yeah. And I showed it to him. He said, no, man. He said, I want you to sing this song. I said, no, man. This is for Barrett, man. Money, that's what I want. Shop around, man. He yeah. said, no, no, no. I want you. I love your voice. on it. I want you to sing. Yeah. No, man. We went through five of the, No, yeah. But he finally said, hey, man. Just go in the studio and record this song on You and the Miracles because I love your voice on it. I did. Barrett Strong was a bluesy singer. So that's how I wrote Shop Around. Yeah. The, uh, 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 just because you become a young man, uh, roll piano, blah 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 yeah. blah blah, all that you know. Yeah. So I recorded like that. Yeah, the record comes out. It's been out for at least two weeks yeah. on the radio. Yeah. One morning, three o'clock in the morning, my phone rings. I pick up the phone. Smoke. I say, Yeah, it's me, Barry. I say, Yeah, man, I recognize your voice. Yeah. yeah. He said, What's happening, man? I said, What's happening? I said, Barry, it's 3 o'clock in the morning. I'm asleep. What's happening with you? He said, Chaperone won't let me sleep. I said, what do you mean, man? He said, you gave it the wrong treatment. He said, I'm going to change the sound. I'm going to change the beat. I'm going to change the feeling of it. And it's going to number one. I said, Barry, the record's been on the radio for two weeks, man. How you go? He said, I don't care. It's not as good as it can be. And it's a good song. Yeah. I'm going to fix it up. Yeah. I said, OK, man, cool. Yeah. You know, yeah. I'll see you tomorrow. He said, no, no, no. I mean, right now. <laughs> I said, Bear, it's 3 o'clock in the morning, man. He said, I don't care. Yeah. I've called the musicians. You get the group. Y'all come to the studio right now while this is on my mind. We go to the studio at 3 o'clock in the morning. Yeah. We record around with his idea, and he went to number one, his first million seller at Motown.
0: So you took, they took the one that was out out of rotation. Yes. And you did a new one. And yes. what was the primary difference?
1: The, everything.
0: Oh, okay. Difference everything off. was the primary difference. Mm.
1: Totally different record altogether.
0: So you just had a vision. Yes, And that's the way he was. Yes. That's crazy. Mm -hmm. So, like, you know, you say when you were a kid, uh, you you know, you go over to Aretha Franklin's house and you hear her singing in the other room. Yeah. It seems to me, like, obviously she's Aretha Franklin, but, I mean, it seems to me at Motown that that happened every other day. Well, it did. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Because people were coming. Right. From all over the world. Yeah. Yeah. Coming to try to audition for Motown.
0: That's amazing. Yeah. And when, when you met Marvin Gaye, Did you, like, what was that like? I mean, did you feel that that guy was a special talent?
1: Oh, I knew he was. I knew he was. You know, Marvin came, uh, there's a guy named Harvey Fuqua. Yeah. Harvey Fuqua was the founder and the leader of one of the the biggest groups in the hood that I grew up listening to as a kid. Yeah. The Moonglows. Yeah. Okay. So Marvin lived in Washington, D.C., and the Moonglows, one of the members had quit or something like that, and Harvey hired Marvin to take his place. And then the Christmas party once again.
0: Uh uh-huh. huh. At, him at to Chris-
1: Yeah, he brought it to the Christmas party yeah. at Motown. So it, it, they happened in the in the studio, in the main studio down there, in, yeah. in, in, in in Snake Pit, they call it. You know, in the main studio, there's a piano down there that we recorded with. Yeah. And Marvin just went over to the piano. There's people. Yeah, we having the Christmas party. Yeah. And he just went over to the piano, sat down, and started playing and singing the Christmas song, Chestnuts Roasting. You know. Oh yeah. So I said, Crowd started gathering around him. He could sing his ass off. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So there in it, and so everybody was interested in him, you know. And so then um, Harvey introduced me to him, and he, you know. Yeah, and uh, when when Marvin first came to Motown, he wanted. He said he was going to be the black Frank Sinatra. He just wanted to sing standards. His first album was a, was an album of standards. Interesting, you know. Yeah, his first single release was Mister Sandman. Okay. Oh wow! Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Mister Sandman. Yeah, because sure. you know? yeah, that's how he wanted to sing. Yeah, but then we could see. So we had a guy named Mickey Stevenson. Yeah, who was our first A and R director there. Yeah, and Mickey told Marvin, he said, "Man, if you want to make a hit." He said, "We, you have to change your story, you know." <laughs> yeah, yeah. So uh, they got together and wrote the song uh, uh, "Stubborn Kind of Fella." Uh huh. Oh yeah, yeah. So yeah, got, and then it was a hit. I got my mind. So yeah. Marvin started to become oh, Marvin Gaye at that point.
0: Oh wow! And then, like, uh, so when you guys, when do you start touring? Do you, do you guys do the caravan thing? You know where there's a bunch of groups on Eventually, a bus. Adventure,
1: uh, you know, uh, Well, not necessarily on the bus. We care it in cars, man. Okay. Mostly every, uh, back in those days, man, when you had a tour, yeah, it'd be a line of cars and vans and shit <laughs> behind each other. Yeah. You know, nobody yeah. really could afford a bus, right? You know, but uh, but yeah, we started touring um, uh, in nineteen. 19- the Miracles and I started touring in 1958.
0: Wow, man. Yeah. On your own or was a few few groups.
1: Uh well, uh we the, the 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 first thing that we did was a thing in Ypsilanti, Michigan with BB King. And we did that and then uh we had a, we recorded uh this was Motown was just starting up and yeah. when we were just starting up we were local. Yeah. So if a record that we put out would break out big, then Barry would put it with some International company for international distribution. Yeah, yeah. So we were at this time. We had a record on Chess Records called uh, "Bad Girl," and it was doing really good. So that started us traveling. The first really professional show we ever did.
0: What was the benefit of of him you know taking it off his label and putting it on Chess?
1: Because we didn't have we didn't have national distribution. Uh, and we Chess have, had that at the time. Yeah, Chess had it. Wow. Yeah, we didn't okay. have. We were just in Detroit, Flint, and Ann Arbor. No shit. Yeah. You know.
0: And chess was already established yeah, with all the blues guys. Was Chuck Berry there yet? Yeah,
1: yeah. Etta James. Okay, uh, right. A whole, a whole lot Mostly of blues, yeah. right? Yeah. 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 And uh, so anyway, so that started us to traveling, traveling, yeah. and the first place we ever traveled to was New York. We were on the Ray Charles show at the Apollo Theater. Oh. And uh, so.
0: How's that? Seem? Did you know? It was terrifying,
1: Ray? and we were terrible. You were. <laughs> Yeah, it was terrifying, and we were terrible. You know, too nervous. Uh, yeah, and to the point where, you know, I thought the guy with the hook was gonna come and take us off the stage at uh, any moment. You
0: yeah, know?
1: but it taught us a lesson because we went home and got ourselves together because we knew that if we wanted to be professional singers, we were going to, have to be better than we were. <laughs> we went there,
0: and, Wait, and was it just nerves, or was it just a matter of re- oh,
1: practice? well, man, you know when you when you when you're interested in being in show business and yeah. stuff, and you're going in there, and you hear about the Apollo Theater, sure. in New York, where the the audiences are super critical, yeah, and they take people off the stage with yeah. hooks and you're terrified, you know, yeah, so absolutely, yeah, you know, you can imagine going there as a kid, 18 years old, having to face that, yeah, yeah, <laughs> you know what I'm crazy, saying?
0: yeah, yeah. So all these hits you wrote for other people, it's, it's interesting, like you know, you did. Uh, uh, my guy, right mm-hmm. for Mary Wells, and then my girl yes. for, for the Temptations. Yes. Now, when when how how does that that process work? Is that something you decide, or or Barry decided, or you're working with N- the Temps? No, or no,
1: no, no, no. one decides what. See, one of the beauties of Motown was, yeah. if you were a producer or a writer at Motown, yeah, and you had a song that you thought fit any artist there, yeah. If you went to that artist and showed them that song and they liked it, yeah. you were free to record it on them, okay? They, you
0: there mean, okay, they There was no, okay, yeah, yeah, can there was no
1: Barry saying that. Barry was not a dictator. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It wasn't that you know, he, he run the company and he said this and he said that. He never worked like that. That was what was so, made us so successful. Yeah. You know, because Barry was still in the studio, too, trying to get some records out right. on people. Sure. We had Monday morning meetings in his office, started 9 a.m. sharp. Yeah. Only people in those meetings were the creative people, the writers and the producers. No salespeople, no nobody else, just the writers and producers. What we did was, this week, I record something on the Supremes, and I want to bring it to the meeting next week. I bring it in, and everybody listens to it, and they say, okay, man, that's not a hit like that. You should do so-and-so and so-and-so and such-and-such and and bring it back next week, and maybe it'll be a hit. Oh, interesting. That's how we did that. Total collaboration. So Barry was putting songs in there. His music just wasn't... Coping with ours, yeah, you know, right. He just, you know, he just, you know, so, yeah. so he was never a dictator. He said he, well, this has got to come out and all this stuff, you know. And so, so, so that was one of the reasons we were so successful, man. And
0: um, that requires a lack of ego and an appreciation of collaborative spirit. Yeah, there.
1: yeah, yeah. That, and that's what made Motown so powerful. If when Barry started Motown, man, if he didn't know something about the, he hired somebody who did. Yeah. <laughs> and let them do that. Yeah, you
0: know? yeah, so, yeah, yeah. So yeah. So and now, from the beginning, now were you? Uh, how did the? Was there a partnership? Were you a partner in the company from the beginning? I was or?
1: part owner eventually, but oh, not yeah. not in the beginning. Not in the beginning. In the beginning, he, you know, it, it was his eight hundred dollars. You know, so <laughs> it was his. Company. It, <laughs> yeah. It's always been his company, but eventually, I I, 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 had a share in it. How did it
0: change? Why did it change in uh, from Tamlin to Motown? Tamlin to Motown.
1: Well. We, the first artist that we ever released a record on, like yeah. I said, we were just local, yeah. and this artist ended up being on United Artists out of New York because the record broke out so big locally, was a guy named Marv Johnson.
2: Yeah.
1: Marv Johnson had written a song. He and Barry wrote a song called Come To Me. Yeah, And we recorded that song. And at the time, Debbie Reynolds had the number one record in the world, a song called Tammy's In Love. Yeah, So Barry, rather than putting it on the Motown label, which was our parent label, he wanted the label to sound like something popular, so rather than Tammy, he named it Tamla. Yeah. And so that's how Tamla label came out before. Oh, okay. Motown. So that
0: was just a, a basically a subsidiary of Motown. Motown exactly. was the company. Was the company. So yeah. Tamla was a, a, a label that was meant to sound a little more poppy. Yes. A little more uh, familiar. Uh huh. Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> and then and then that just that gets swallowed up by Motown eventually.
1: No, it never got swallowed up.
0: It just stayed its own yeah. thing for yeah. a while.
1: It stayed all while we had the company. Yeah,
0: yeah. It was, there was always Tamla.
1: It was always Tamla.
0: So what? 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 How did you decide what to be on Motown? What to be on Tamla?
1: Well, we let the sales department decide. Oh, good. really? It's, if we had a hot record out on Motown at the time, just put it on Tamla. Yeah. If Tamla just put it on Soul. Yeah. Uh, that would put it on, you know.
0: When did When did Motown get the distribution necessary not to have to go to other labels?
1: Oh, probably after Shop Around came out. Oh, yeah? Because, see, we had, we had bashed them in the face three times in a row. With yeah. With Mr. Postman. Yeah. Money, that's what I want. he comes yeah. Shop Around.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Then you got So it.
1: See, because back in those days, especially if you were black, yeah. the distributors might not pay you at all. They right. might not pay you anything because they're waiting to see what you're going to do. Yeah. If you have another hit record, then they might pay you for the first one, you know. We bombarded them. We got to the point where they'd be calling, when is your next record coming out? <laughs> yeah, 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 so, yeah. Yeah.
0: And wait, we're, wait now, and you're best friends with Aretha through all of this, right? Yes. And she's not on Motown.
1: No, her father wouldn't let her be on Motown.
0: And was that, like, did you guys have conversations about that?
1: Oh uh, Yeah, Aretha and I talked about it. Yeah. Her father wouldn't let her be on Motown because we were fledgling. Yeah. And he wanted her to be with somebody that was popular with international distribution. I understood it. Yeah. She was a great singer. Yeah. You know, so she went over to Columbia and, and she sang standards. And it didn't work for years. And it didn't work. Yeah, she sang standards. But Aretha could sing the phone book and it would have been a hit. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. But she sang standards and then that didn't work. So finally as Armored Erdogan approached her and got her to go to Atlantic, Atlantic and, and, there, and here comes and, Aretha Franklin.
0: Right. And then Wexler got involved.
1: Yeah. yeah Jerry. Yeah.
0: yeah. Do you know that guy?
1: Uh, not know him, know him, but yeah. I know, yeah. So
0: when do you become like you, so you move up or I don't know if you move up, but you become a partner in Motown, right? Yeah. And then you, you, you actually were vice president for a while?
1: I was vice president for, yeah, for, for as long as we had it. After 1963, <laughs> Yeah, I became a vice president in 1963. And I was pre- vice president until we sold Motown. So what happens
0: with, how does it shift from, you know, you being solo and even the miracles and then, you know, you, you know, stepping away from Motown? How does that, I guess it's two different times. But what was the decision around doing solo?
1: You know what, man? Um, like I said, I had been a vice president since 1963. Yeah. I retired from the Miracles in 1972. Yeah. Okay. While I was at home, mm. I, I had two. I had two two jobs actually.
0: Yeah.
1: I was vice president. I got a salary from that. Yeah. I was doing that. I was writing, and producing for other people, not just the Miracles and me. I was making money from that. Yeah. The other guys in the group were not. I tried to encourage them because you know I was tired, and I tried to encourage them to Write some songs. I just yeah. put their names on songs just so they would have some other income, yeah, you know, to 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 sure. subside when I was at home, right? But when I was at home, I was working in because I had a job because I was vice president of Motown, yeah, you know, so I was always working. So, um, and 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 like I said, uh, Claudette, who was my first wife, she was the girl in the group. And while she's traveling on the road, we were traveling on the road with grueling back in the day, we do 31 nighters, that yeah. kind oh, of stuff, geez. you know, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah.
1: and uh, and uh, so. We wanted to have some kids, eventually. We had seven miscarriages. Oh my God! Because of her being on the road. Terrible. Finally, my oldest son was born. Yeah. And um, two years later, my daughter was born. So I didn't want to be from my kids like that. I wanted to see them. I wanted. Do you them, want to be on the road? I want. Yeah, yeah. I wanted. I wanted to see them take their first steps. and yeah. Say their first words and all that, you know. Right. So I told the guys in the group. I said, I'm going to retire. They laughed at me. Yeah, Yeah. yeah, because we've been together since we were kids. We were brothers, and they knew how much I loved it. Yeah. So they, oh, yeah, man, right, okay, cool, okay, cool, (laughs) baby, I'll see you later, that kind of thing. So then I was really going to retire, man, and here comes Tears of a Clown. And we recorded Tears of a Clown in 1967. It was on an album of The Miracles and Me. Uh, And in 1970, when I was getting ready to retire, a young lady who worked for Motown in England had that record, that album playing in the office on a record player, and Tears of a Clown comes on. So she goes, bonkers, you know? A guy named Peter was running our office over there in England at the time. She called Peter, she said, Peter, this is a hit. We should put this out over here. Peter agreed. They put it out over there. It's the first number one record we ever had in the UK. Started to spread out all over Europe, you know? Had another record ready to go here in the United States. I told PR, I said, he said, no, 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 we're putting our Tears of a Clown here. yeah To this date, Tears of a Clown is the biggest single record I've ever been attached to.
0: No kidding. Okay? Yeah.
1: It just went bonkers all over the world.
0: Okay? Wow.
1: So then the guys came and said, hey, man, <laughs> our salaries went up and all that. You know, you're definitely not retiring now. Yeah. So I agreed with them. Yeah. Like I said, they were my brothers. I wanted them to have as much stockpile cash as they could possibly have. So I went for another year.
0: yeah
1: and But during that year, I told them, see, you guys better find somebody. So they auditioned guys from all over the country. They finally came up with this guy named Bill Griffin from Baltimore. Mm-hmm. And Bill traveled with us for about six months before I retired to watch the show every night and so on and so forth. And then I retired with the intention of never being on stage again. That
0: was 1972? Yes.
1: Wow. Never being on stage again. That was my thing. i have been on stage. The Miracles and I had done everything a group could do. We had done it three or four times. we have been all over the world. Yeah. We'd done I'm done. Yeah. The kids are here. I am done. I will never be on stage again. Okay? So, I started to Barry moved Motown out to Los Angeles. I started to go to the office every day and doing all that. I, yeah. I, when I was in Detroit, my office was designed to induct new talent. Uh huh. When I moved out to Los Angeles, Barry said, okay, man, you say you're my best friend. I'm going to make you the financial office. So, I was signing checks and getting checks and all that, you know. And at first it was great, man, because I am doing some corporate stuff, and I'm, I would go have corporate meetings with yeah. people. I traveled, go to New York, have a corporate meeting. I was oh man, I'm the vice president, I'm doing yeah. my vice president thing. <laughs> it was cool. <laughs> After about two and a half years, yeah, I was climbing the walls.
0: But were you writing songs?
1: I was writing songs. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yes. So you, you didn't yeah. leave you. No, Mm-mm. I was climbing the walls. Mm. Okay, and I just. Missed being on stage and being in show business and all that. Yeah, The miracles were still going on. They, yeah. you know, they had a big and, they were still, and I got to the point where I would go to little clubs in the evening after yeah. I left the office just to see somebody on stage, man. I was suffering inside but I didn't tell my wife I didn't tell Barry I didn't tell anybody because I want anybody to think I was giving up or I failed at being the vice president <laughs> I didn't, so I didn't tell anybody I was just miserable on the inside you know yeah, yeah. <laughs> the tracks of my tears or yeah, something like sure. that you know what I'm saying yeah. so I'm living that and finally one day Barry came to my office and he said hey man he said I want you to do me a favor I said well, buddy he said I want you to get a band make a ring and get out of here I said, what? He said, yeah. He said, you heard me because you're miserable. And when I see you miserable, it makes me miserable. I don't want to be miserable, so I need you to get away from me. So I did. I, I I got a band. I went to the studio. I recorded a Quiet Storm album. And that was my debut back into show business.
0: That's so wild. And when you were going out, like in, when you're miserable and you're going out to clubs as he was working, were you getting sort of, I, I guess you were at Motown still, but the Music had changed a little bit, right?
1: Yeah, it changed.
0: Yeah, yeah. And were you seeing guys at that time where you're like, damn, I gotta get back into this?
1: Well, I know I wasn't thinking, damn, I gotta get back into it because I didn't think it was going to be possible for me to get back into it, right? So, but I was thinking, damn, yeah,
0: <laughs> <Sure>. yeah, yeah. <laughs> because like you know, that record is uh, it's it, it was, I mean, I don't know when it shifted, did it shift with. You know Marvin Gaye in the seventies. Is that what changed the nature of of R and B, the sound of it?
1: I, I I don't know that it shifted with him necessarily, but I know that uh, what's going on to this moment yeah. is still my favorite album of all times. Yeah, you know I was with him when he was writing it, and he you know, and he told me he said, "Smoke God is writing this album." Uh huh. He said, "I'm just a catalyst, babe. I'm sitting here to be honest, but God is writing this." When you listen to it, I can believe it because it's prophecy. Yeah, what he wrote on that album is more poignant today than it was when the album came out. Yeah, you know. Yeah, prophecy. Yeah. So anyway, yeah. So I think that he just changed. I, I know he changed Barry's mind you know, on on music because Marvin was our sex symbol. Right. At, at at Motown, you know. Yeah. And Barry was totally against him doing what's going on. Why? because he thought it was a protest record and it wasn't fitting Marvin's image and Marvin was gonna lose fans by coming out with something like that. Uh-huh. But Marvin, you know, like I said, his first record was a stubborn kind of fella and that's who he was, he yeah. was stubborn. Marvin said, no, man, he said, I'm putting this out, we, if, I, if you don't put this out, I'm not putting anything out. So he said, this is it. And it was huge. So he and Barry made a bet Yeah. and Barry lost big time. <laughs> I mean, he yeah. lost big time man yeah.
0: because it feels like you know that 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 changed culture
2: in a way, it did. right it did yeah. like i
0: said it's prophecy yeah and did it, did it how did it make you think about your music
1: well, I did want to do a concept album. That's why my first Quiet Storm album was a concept album. Right. And uh, it was hooked together through the wind and— Right, opens with the wind. Yeah, you know. Yeah. So, uh, but yeah, and I had no idea it was going to become, what it has become, become a radio format and all that. You know, I wasn't even thinking like that. I just thought, okay, I'm going back in the show business and I've always been a quiet singer, but I'm going to take it by storm. Yeah. And then I said, ooh. That's a great idea. Quiet right. a storm. Well,
0: that's well, that's interesting because what's going on comes out in 1971, mm-hmm. and you were you were talking to him through the whole process mm-hmm. of that, and the, and there was something personal and and quiet about that record in a way, mm-hmm. and it had a lot of textures, and it was a concept. And it record. flowed, yeah.
1: It just flowed.
0: So that you yes. know, so that planted a seed, I bet a mm-hmm. little bit, right? Yep. yep. And uh, so, how was like you guys were pretty good friends,
1: you yeah, and Marvin. I yeah, we were really good friends.
0: Yeah. And when did he start kind of coming unhinged?
1: Uh, you know, after finding out his relationship with his dad. Yeah. He probably started to I didn't know that till after Marvin was dead. Which he, part we, of it? What his relationship with his dad was like. Yeah. We never talked about that. Oh, really? I always felt like that if we had talked about it, I might have could have helped him Yeah. or something. You know? Yeah. But he started to unravel as a child. Mm. Because his dad was a whole nother kind of dude. Yeah. His dad was really deep.
0: Yeah.
1: Abusive. Know? Yes.
0: Yeah. So 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 it, and then it just kind of blew up later. Yes. Obviously. Uh but okay, but The Quiet Storm record, this is the record that a lot of these young guys cite as the the beginning of their sort of awareness about uh, almost a new kind of music. I'll take it. <laughs> And that sort of defined, you know, your approach to up till now. Yeah. And the the primary difference was it was a concept record, but there's something they call this the smooth approach. But you've always been, I guess,
1: I don't know. I don't know if that's true. Would you say you were smooth when you were younger? I, I don't know what to, you know, define myself as. Sure. You know, but I always thought that, like I said, I thought that I was never a, a loud kind yeah. of singer-like, you know. Sure. So that's why I came with the quiet thing, quiet so, I was going to be a quiet storm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so. And then yeah.
0: that and then you sort of you you just got back into it and started yes. releasing those solo records. Yes. And when do you hit the wall? Which wall is that? Like uh, when does your life spiral out of control?
1: Um, it started to spiral out of control in about 1980 at the end of 1981. Yeah. At the end of 1981. And it was out of control until uh, May of 1986. Oh, yeah? Okay, yes. Yeah. Now, what happened with me was I have never been a drinker. Yeah. And weed is and always was my drug of choice. Yeah. Okay? Yeah. So I've always been like... I, I was just, for lack of a better term, athletic. Yeah. Because I always played sports and yeah. I run marathons, all that kind of stuff like yeah. that. So with weed, I always had that control of it. Yeah. I could, I could have the greatest weed in the world and not smoke it for a year. Yeah. Just, you know, just because I, I had, because I was always running and doing different stuff like that. Yeah. So one year I was with one of my friends. I will not call his name because he's <laughs> a very popular man. Uh-huh. And he has some cocaine. Yeah. Now, where I grew up, I had seen everything. Sure. Cocaine, heroin, junkies, prostitutes, blah, 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 all in my neighborhood. Yeah. Some in my house. Sure. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah. So, so, uh, yeah. So, but anyway, I never bothered with any cocaine or anything. So, anyway, he has this cocaine and he, he puts it in one of my joints. Uh huh. Okay. Yeah. And I smoked it and I liked it. Sure. Beginning of the downfall. Sure. Okay. So I got to the point where I was loving that so much. I was doing it all the time. Yeah. Went down to 122 pounds. Just a skeleton, you know, just... Did you
0: lose uh, your mind?
1: uh, No, I never lost my mind. Uh, I guess I did if I'm doing all that like that. Yeah. But anyway, I was just... And, and all the physical things that were happening to me and happening to my body. And, yeah. And I wasn't telling anybody because yeah. I, I was afraid to even go to the doctor because I knew he was going to say, oh, man, if you just come last week, I could have saved you, but it's too late, you know. Yeah. But anyway, another one of my closest friends came and got me one Sunday night, man. And uh, he had heard about it because it wasn't publicized because I was very hermit with it
0: right. to but, myself. But at and, the same time, Marvin <laughs> was spiraling too, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, but, but you were in yeah. different
0: places. Was, yeah,
1: we were in different places, but uh, but I didn't really start to spiral spiral until he got killed. Oh, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. I didn't really, you know, because he and I used to do it together sometimes. Sure, you know? yeah, but I never snorted cocaine or yeah. did the pipe or the the free basing, and I never did that. I just took it with weed. That was, that was, oh, really?
0: That's all you ever did was just you put it all, in a cigarette, yeah, you smoke yeah, it. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. But anyway, yeah. So. Uh, but anyway, I didn't spiral out of control until he was dead. Uh, to, you know, he just... Yeah. And anyway, I your did. Friend,
0: and what did your friend... Uh, you, you said he helped you? Huh? Someone come help you?
1: Yeah, yeah, he came and he said, man, he said, um, you know, I heard about this. You know, it's a couple of people my family knew and Barry yeah. knew. And, yeah. you know, and they were all trying to help me and stuff. He said, I'm going to pray for you. So he started praying for me. And he took me to a prayer service the next night where the minister called me up to the platform. I had never seen her in my life. She had never seen me in her life. She she whispers in my ear, she says, I don't know you, but I know you. She said, most of these people probably don't even recognize you in this church because you look really bad. Because I did, man. I looked horrible. Mm. She said, but a year ago, I was in my prayer closet praying, and your name came out of my mouth. Smokey Robinson, she said, now, I said, Lord, I don't know Smokey Robinson. I've never even met Smokey And the Lord told me, well, you pray for him, because if you don't, he's going to die and have a stroke from smoking cocaine. So here you are. That's why I called you up here tonight. I know about She started telling me all the stuff that was happening to me physically and all that, that I hadn't told anybody on earth. I'd never said it to anyone on earth. She told me everything, every symptom, everything about my stomach, everything about the shortness of breath and the cold sweat. She told me all that, whispering in my ear. Then she passes out. And she raised it up. She said, the Lord is powerful in your spirit. You're going to spread this because you're healed now. So I tell everybody I was healed. I didn't go to the hospital. I've never been to rehab. I've never been to any place like that. I was healed because God sent me there that night. To be healed, because if not, I wouldn't even be here talking to you, man. Yeah, you know, right? That's how far gone I was. I was, I was out quite a moment, and I did that for two years. I speak now at churches and rehabs and gang meetings and schools and all that. And when I go to the rehabs, man, I see people in there who've been doing that, and the drugs are a whole lot worse than they were then when Scary. I was doing it. Oh yeah,
0: because yeah, you just dropped dead. They've been
1: doing it for ten years, and they're twenty. Oh. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, I do. I don't know how. I do. I have no idea how. Yeah. But anyway, so yeah, so you know, I, I was healed. And, and I haven't had any drugs since uh, May of 1986. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Wow. Like I said, I smoke a little weed now, but other yeah. than that.
0: Yeah. You know, so it was
1: a... a... I, I, told, I told my family, <laughs> I told my wife, I said, anybody ever come in and say, smoke your deed, call the cops. Yeah. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you call the cops, because...
0: Because they killed you.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. But before that, were, did you were you were brought up in the church or no? Not exactly. Yeah not exactly like yeah. I said my mom passed when I was ten man but my right. mom was one of those church people yeah but my mom was also one of those women that would cuss you out in a in a, in a New York second yeah. if you got down wrong yeah you know right. but she went to church three times a week like yeah. she was in the the the, the church choir and uh, and the, the the pastor meetings or whatever the church sure, was doing you sure. know Sunday she would make me go to Sunday school and sometimes if my sisters weren't there to take care of me she would make me go back to church with her right. at night. Right. Now, man, I was terrified of church. I was terrified of I've never been a, re- a real church goer yeah. even since I was terrified because I'm a little boy. Yeah. And I see see in, in the Baptist churches and in the, in the black churches, those sisters are shouting and falling all over and dancing around and yeah. falling on the floor, and yeah. they're coming and reviving them with smelling salts and all that. That used to scare me to death. <laughs> Okay? Yeah. I was terrified. Yeah. So I guess growing up, you know, I, when I got to the point where I didn't have to go, yeah. I didn't.
0: That's interesting because yeah. it wasn't like, because so many, you know, R&B singers or people of your generation kind of cite that music as being the roots of where their music comes from.
1: Well, it's the, I think that, now if you're just going to talk about the music, see, I think that all American music, this includes country and western, sure. whatever, it is, all American music stems from the cotton fields, uh-huh. from those black folks being out there picking that cotton, all they could do to entertain themselves was harm and sing and praise yeah. the Lord and all the stuff. So that derived into the blues, yeah. and the blues derived into uh, R and B yeah. and pop yeah. and all. You know, yeah. Yeah. so I yeah. think it all stems from that. Sure. Yeah, but, it's but like- I, I was not—I was not a kid who went to church and sang in church, and right, did, right. I, I didn't do that.
0: Yeah. Yeah,
1: but because, because even though she, I was growing up with the Weathervane.
0: <laughs> yeah, and she definitely did. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but but it seems like the on the new record You Fill Me Up is kind of a gospel song, isn't it?
1: Well, um
0: I guess it could go either way.
1: Yes. <laughs> yeah. There you go. Yeah. You 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 hit the nail on the head because yeah. that's exactly what I wanted it. To. Yeah. Yeah, it could go either way. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and I tried to leave that for all the songs. Yeah. You know, gasms. Yeah. People me well, why'd you call it gasm? Because I knew it would be controversy. Yeah. I knew it caused controversy because gasms. Because people, when you say gasm, first thing they think about is orgasm. Sure. Yeah. Ga- oh, he's talking gasm. You know. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Someone one of the comments online was a girl said, "How's he gonna be thinking about gasm?" And he's eighty-three. You know. Yeah. I have never stopped loving sex.
0: Yeah. Well, that's never. Good.
1: I hope I don't ever get to that point. You know I what know. What yeah. know. What are you going to do then? You know what I mean? Really, really. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I hear people they're, they're sixty or fifty. Well, well, gosh, I don't think about sex. I'm sixty years old. Well, I don't know what happened to you, but well, yeah. <laughs> whatever yeah. it was. Well, yeah. This is pretty I'm sorry.
0: This is a pretty sexy record.
1: Yeah. So it's I left. A, I left every song yeah. open for your own interpretation.
0: Yeah. And that, now it's. This is the first album since what? Since like 2009. Oh man, Yeah.
1: The first album of original material that I, I did one. Uh, a while back, uh, uh, I was with a, a, a person from Amazon. Yeah, approached me and they wanted me to do uh, an album. So I did one called Smokey and Friends. and well, I that was some, fun, right? Yeah, yeah, it was fun. seeing yeah. with my friends and stuff. Yeah, and 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 the Christmas album. For
0: right, but no, but the original material. So what? It's what have you been doing? Fun.
1: I've been I've been working, man. You know, I do concerts all the time. Sure, right. You do the live yeah, shows. Yeah, yeah. I've been doing live shows, and I've been writing. I write all the time. Yeah. Yeah, it just so took could, it. Just yeah. took a while. Yeah, it took it took a while. It took a while. It took you know, about five years really.
0: What was it that was holding you back? It wasn't uh, just uh,
1: that the fact that I wanted it to be. Whereas, when I heard it,
0: yeah,
1: oh, listen back to it, yeah, I could say, okay, I gave it all I got.
0: Right. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it sounds cause, great. Cause,
1: because thank you, but but it was very important because it is the first. Original material album that I've had on in a long time. Yeah, and at my age, you know, it's important that I come with something that I thought people would take to. You know, sure. So uh, I had to listen to it a thousand times and work on it and work on it and work on it. Hard on yourself. Yeah, until I until I feel like okay, this is it for this album.
0: Yeah, yeah. And now, do you feel like do you do you look back at your other stuff and do you, do you have? Sort of favorites, you know, outside like the or is like what's happening now. What's happening?
1: Uh, yeah, but me is what's happening now is what's happening. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I'm not gonna retro. See, people, I think a, a lot of the the mistake that a lot of people make when they're making music is to try to outdo their last music. Yeah, you know, and especially if they've had something that's a really big hit. Yeah, you know, they're gonna try to outdo that, so it stymies them. Yeah, you know. I just wanted to, some music that I enjoyed. That feels good to me. That I think would get the attention of, of people, and 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 then I just hope people would like it.
0: Well, I think it's great, and it sounds thank great, you. and it's a nice, you know, variety of the type of music you've always done. And you thank know, you. And it was an honor meeting you, sir. My pleasure. On the ball, engaged. What a great conversation gasms his new record is available wherever you get your music and if you could please hang out for a second hey folks this episode is brought to you by kleenex ultra soft tissues your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex ultra soft tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. You know, all those times you've heard guests sneeze on the show. Well, actually you don't hear any of that because we cut the sneezes out when we're editing, but take my word for it. People definitely sneeze in here. And when they they do i've got a box of kleenex on the table right in front of them so they can use one and get right back to business and here's what kleenex means to me a tissue that will hold up we've all used those other tissues that you blow holes right through when i see kleenex i know that tissue is up for the job for this allergy season grab kleenex and face allergies head on Five years ago, I had just moved into this house, and one of the first guests I had in the new garage was Josh Brolin. That's episode 915, and you can listen to it right now for free in whatever podcast app you're using.
2: How long have you been sober? Almost five years. That's okay. great. Yeah. yeah? But I had five years, and then I had three and a half. Or three That's what and happens. Nine, and then five, and then, yeah. Are you able to identify why you decide that moment? The, the, the to horror? go back out? Yeah. Oh yeah, man! It was an absolutely fully conscious decision. You're like, you like I'm know. ready? <laughs> yeah. Seriously, it wasn't like yeah, yeah. It was. It wasn't like you know. Yeah. You hear these guys in the rooms. They're like, I don't even know what happened. <laughs> like before I knew it, I was in the bar. I was drinking. I all fucking, I don't know what happened. And you're like, how is that how's that possible? I knew I made an absolute conscious decision to go yeah. fuck it up even more. Yeah. Because I appreciated the destructivity of it all yeah, yeah. more than I liked sobriety at that point. Right. Now it's very different. Yeah. It's very different. What what do you think changed? I don't know. And there was no major like the moment of clarity or anything. I saw my grandma. She was kind of, she was on her apparent deathbed. She didn't die until later. Yeah. And I went in there after Halloween and I had been kind of helming the whole taking care of grandma thing and the family was around and all that. And my brother and I were going to go see her and this was like the 10th day or something. Yeah. And, and... And then I went out and to have a nice uh, Halloween with my wife. Yeah. And then that turned into all kinds of shit. When you end up at Del Taco, you know something's wrong. <laughs> you know what I mean? If you know it's time at, to get sober. If it's late at night. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: Del Taco, not even paying attention to what's around no. you. Just, just like no. Just No. No,
2: you see the sign kind of through a brownout or a blackout and you're like, oh, <laughs> what does that say? <laughs> Del. No, taco, (laughs) fuck. And you know you're doomed.
0: Again, that's episode 915 with Josh Brolin. You can get all WTF episodes ad-free with a WTF Plus subscription. So just go to the link in the episode description or go to WTFPod.com and click on WTF Plus. Here's some riffage. To find a